2: Assistant Professor with the Institute of Genocide and atrocity Prevention at Binghamton University. And I do want to share with you that our university sits on the ancestral land of the Oneida and Onondaga peoples. And I actually have with me a Binghamton colleague, Shay Rabino, who is an Associate Professor of Israel Studies and also the Associate Director for the Center of Israel Studies. And is situated in the Judaic Studies Department of Binghamton University. And Shay also has a PhD in Near Eastern and Judaic studies from Brandeis University. Welcome, Shay.
1: Thank you, Chris. Good to meet. Good to talk to you here.
2: Thanks very much. So we're going to be talking about your recent book. Uh, it's called "Walking the Land: A History of Israeli Hiking Trails," and this came out this year with Indiana University Press. Uh, so I'm excited to chat with you about the book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it, and I feel like it's such a Um, a really interesting topic and sort of approaches the whole context of conflict in history and society in in the Middle East with a very unique perspective. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So I've got a a few things to sort of get us into thinking about the book here, but I wondered if, first of all, you might be able to introduce yourself and it'd be helpful for our listeners to know. A little bit more about you and your career, and how you came to work in Israel studies.
1: Okay, sure. Yeah, so I'm. You know, I'm. I like to make it clear usually at the beginning. Uh, I teach a lot on Israel studies, and I do Israeli-Palestinian conflict and things like that here at Binghamton University. Courses on the history of modern Israel. Um, but I'm neither Jewish nor Israeli, so I'm coming from a rather unique background in Judaic and Israel studies. Um, in the sense that you know, I don't have exactly you know a personal connection to these fields, but I guess in other ways it is personal. I grew up in the United States and I'm um, originally from Indiana. Uh, I grew up with uh, a Christian background and grew up reading the Bible and things like that. So, like many people, I became interested in Israel and I guess the Holy Land, yeah, as people sometimes talk about it. You know, when I was when I was young, um, you know, just kind of reading about it in the Bible or seeing maps and things like that. So um, I guess in that sense, my connection isn't that unusual for, you know, a lot of Americans kind of have that that sort of background. Um, but when I was an undergrad, I went out to the University of Oklahoma, and I became interested in the Middle East. And I traveled in Morocco for part of a summer, and then I came back and studied Arabic. Then I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. And I saw Israel and some of East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And I thought I would begin studying Hebrew as well. So uh, I really got into the languages of the Middle East and became interested in the cultures. I was a journalism major starting out, ended with an an English creative writing major. So I was interested in writing about that part of the world and exploring it. Uh, And I ended up getting a job working for a tour operator who ran tours in the summertime uh, in Israel for kind of you know Holy Land pilgrimage type things. taking tour buses and seeing holy sites, uh, mostly in Christianity and Judaism, some Muslim sites as well. Uh, and after a few years of doing that, uh, my interest just continued to grow, but I wanted to be able to see more of the country. And so I had I had been a boy scout as a teenager and things like that and thought, wow, how cool would it be if it were possible to put on a backpack and go backpacking across the country? Um, And I didn't know that it was possible, but by then I had made some Israeli friends and I was fairly fluent in Hebrew. And found note that it was indeed possible and not just possible, but um, that there are, you know, thousands of kilometers of trails that spread across the country. So um, I got into Israel studies sort of that way. I began walking across the country. I did a few really long walks, uh, including one on the Israel National Trail. I spent 30 days. Uh, walking the sort of the length of the bread and breadth of the country in 2006. And then over time, I started considering graduate programs and got into the uh, PhD program at Brandeis in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies, where just as I continued studying Israeli and Jewish history, I started to think wow, those trails that I explored actually could be something worth studying. Uh, so that was kind of where it all began for me. Well, it's quite a
2: you know a fascinating background, right? And you know a very, I guess, unconventional way of, of getting into a, a given topic. Not a lot of people sort of come in from uh, the field, right? In a non, I guess, in a relatively non-academic way, which gives you, I think, again, adds to that unique perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so i was wondering if, in a few words, you could tell us what the book is about.
1: Yeah, so Walking the Land, uh it's subtitled The History of Israeli Hiking Trails and that that's I mean that's what it's about and I think that um that in, in some ways that it sounds too simple, right? I mean, The History of Israeli Hiking Trails, it might, some people might mistake it as some kind of guidebook or something, right? We're just talking about interesting trails and how they came to be or something like that. It's it's about a, little, a lot more than that though. Um so Israel has this massive hiking trail network, right? About 11,000 kilometers of trails in a country that is around 20,000 square kilometers, I think. So if you kind of do the ratios on that, Israel for its right kilometer by kilometer is one of the most densely waymarked countries in the world. So it has more trails for its size than almost anywhere else. Um that was interesting to me and as i went and i hiked across the country i also had the sense that when i walked people spoke to me in ways that surprised me i you know if i if i were on the the appalachian trail in the united states and i met a a hiker from overseas i I might say, well, what brought you here or what made you interested in the trail? But I, they wouldn't really have to explain why they were hiking, right? I mean, it's a great way to see America. And there are lots of interesting places and interesting people. So Israelis always seemed surprised that I was out there on the trails. Um, and it wasn't just because the, their trail network isn't publicized in English. I mean, that's another interesting thing. There, There's just no English language maps, guidebooks, things like that. Um, And this is a country that gets 3 million tourists per year. So right away, I wondered why uh, so many people come and visit this country from overseas. There's a very active ministry of tourism. I mean, tourism is a huge sector of Israel's economy. And yet this big network of hiking trails was essentially unpublicized, inaccessible to anyone who doesn't have some fluency in Hebrew. So um, that was kind of where I started. Why did this trail network take shape here in the Middle East it's the only one uh, out of all the neighboring countries that really looks the way it does I suspected that that had to do with Israel's unique history right being born from you know Zionism a movement that largely began in Eastern Europe and you know in which Jewish immigrants came to Palestine so I had a sense that maybe this was something that had been brought from Europe um, but that was what I wanted to find out there were no no histories written about it so um, I wrote about the genesis of this trail network and it's spread across the country. But in the process of doing that, I had to go all the way back to the political culture that gave rise to a uh, culture of hiking in British Mandate Palestine, in the early state of Israel. And then I had to trace out, OK, where did they choose to mark trails? Where did those trails go? How does the spread of trails connect with Bigger questions that were being asked at the time, like conquest of territory, uh, national identity. So as it turns out, uh, to write about hiking trails in Israel is to write about politics, to write about nationalism, to write about personal and national identity, to write about collective memory, uh, and also to write about occupation, expansion into Uh, newly conquered Palestinian territories after 1967. So all of those questions that are so pertinent when we talk about modern Israel, um, Zionism, Jewish identity, control over territory and land, what are the boundaries of the state? The hiking trail network dealt with all of those on the ground as it grew. Um, And so that's really, I guess, the big story that I'm telling in the book.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. For listeners who might not be familiar, and you've kind of sketched out a little bit already some of the, the themes, you know, these contact points with Zionism and expansion, and tell us a little bit more just briefly about sort of the history of how walking trails developed and who are some of the main groups or actors involved in this story.
1: So hiking trails begin in Europe. I mean, hiking trails as we know them now are a pretty modern phenomenon. Uh, Right. I mean, for and people have walked forever, but hiking trails are a thing that really only become uh, prevalent, I suppose, or, 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 or recognizable as we might know them now in Europe in the late 1700s, 1800s. You know, there's this culture of mountaineering and climbing Mont Blanc, the different peaks of the Alps. Um, So that that culture really starts to grow throughout the 19th century in Europe, but waymarked trails don't appear until the 1880s in Bohemia, so today the Czech Republic. And Czech-speaking hikers began waymarking routes so that youth hiking clubs could go out and walk. And the first trails they marked were marked in red and white, the colors of the Bohemian crown. So there was, I think, There's maybe some connections to national identity even there in Europe from the very start. But um, hiking, of course, became even more connected that way. I mean, there are big youth movements in Europe like the Wanderfogel in Germany uh, that grow and evolves. Uh, The scouting movement that begins in the UK also spreads across the continent. And so as you get into the early 20th century, hiking and trails are becoming very common. Uh, Zionists in Europe, Jewish nationalists who wanted to build a state in Palestine, began thinking about hiking and trails as ways in which young Jews could reconnect with land uh, in a way that might make them equipped to build a modern state and to uh, once again, I guess they saw themselves as being very unengaged with nature and land and the physical just the physical world. They wanted to become rooted in the earth. And so there are uh, Jewish philosophers and thinkers like A.D. Gordon, for example, uh, who take this labor Zionist approach to uh, reconnecting this land. So hiking became important for early Zionists who were going to Palestine and Zionists in Europe who were preparing young people to go there. Uh, it's really not until the 1940s, 1930s and 40s, that hiking in, in British Mandate Palestine by Jewish hikers starts to become more systematized. Um, I won't try to tell the whole story. I want to keep it brief. But in 1947, a group of you know paramilitary youth hikers uh, from an organization called the Palmach, they begin marking a trail. Uh, on the very cusp of the United Nations vote to partition Palestine. Uh, they marked the first trail marked in red and white, very similar to those Czech waymarks that I mentioned earlier. And they essentially kind of import this European system to uh, a mountain on the shores of the Dead Sea. After Israeli statehood, The trails lie dormant for a little while. Hikers are ranging across the country wanting to know this territory, know this country, become part of it, make it theirs and realize their control over it. Um, But it's only after, you know, a lot of series of hiking accidents uh, that in the 1960s, they begin waymarking networks of trails in earnest. But once they start doing that, uh, trails become wildly popular across the country. They spread first from the most far-flung border zones, where it was really glamorous for young hikers to go and explore. And then they start penetrating inward into the country. So um, I talk about a few figures in the book, uh, a guy named Yossi Feldman, who starts at a place called En on the shores of the Dead Sea, builds a trail network, and then passes the reins on to a guy named Ori Dvir, uh, D-V-I-R, if your li- listeners are interested. He becomes the architect of Israel's trail network, going all the way up, really, until around the year 2000. And so over the decades, he supervises the creation of this countrywide trail system that eventually becomes more mainstream, less frontier-oriented, less adventure-oriented, and becomes something that families and uh, everyone in Israel does. So um, we have these individuals who are trail entrepreneurs, but this becomes... Deeply woven into Israel's culture, to the point that eventually every every you know school with a Zionist curriculum in Israel is taking students out on annual field trips, so that by the time kids are done with high school, they've essentially walked the length and breadth of the country and feel like they belong to it and it belongs to them.
2: That's fascinating about you know having it that sort of you ground into culture at the school level there so it really seems like that these trails you know capture the imagination of many israelis um but that not everybody has the same perspective on them i wonder in in your version of this story how you've accounted for accounted for these different sort of layers of history that are represented in the trails and how you've tried to sort of see these different perspectives and different interpretations of what the meaning of these trails are?
1: Yeah, that's a cool question. I think, uh, I mean, when when these hikers come to Palestine, I mean, some of these folks in the story are, they're, they're familiar with European country or European hiking, traveling those countries on foot. When they come to Palestine, many of them in the 1920s and the 1930s, they're obviously encountering a very different place. And it's a place where they've never been. They've imagined it. They've maybe they've read religious texts like the Bible. Many of them are secular, but they're engaging with those texts as historical sources. And they're picturing things, right? They're picturing all these different Jewish ideas about the land being the land of milk and honey uh, or, or a promised land in ancient times. So they may envision all kinds of things. But when they encounter Palestine in its reality with a vastly majority Arab population, um, all the place names are in Arabic uh, unless unless these hikers themselves go out and try to resurrect old Hebrew place names that are identifiable from the Bible and things like that. I mean, this is kind of what they're doing. These are These are folks who are going out and hiking and trying to uncover the Jewish history of the land in ancient times so that they have a bit of a map about how to build their modern community and maybe eventually a modern state so uh they're they're really looking for that jewish layer of saints and so certain sites that are identifiable become like magnets for these youth hikers so uh, masada in the desert east of jerusalem between jerusalem and the dead seeds uh even now that desert is often referred to as the judean desert because it's that's how it's described in the bible uh, the Judean desert became really the testing and training ground for these young hikers who wanted to know the land, know their country. Um, and Masada was this ancient fortress. It, for the, for readers or for listeners not familiar, um, it's a mountaintop fortress that was built by Herod the Great in the first century BCE as a, kind of a readout, uh, like a, a place where he could retreat in, in times of of chaos, but it was also his winter palace. So um, Jewish rebels ended up taking it over during the period of Roman occupation. And they hid out on the mountain and there's this legendary thing that takes place. The historian Flavius Josephus writes about the nine hundred and sixty some, you know, occupiers of Masada are holding out against the Romans. And when the Romans finally try to take them over, uh, they're about to breach the gates after a month long siege. Uh, the, D- the Jewish defenders commit suicide, mass suicide, rather than surrender to Rome. Um, that story becomes immortalized in modern times for Hebrew speakers through a poem that's written by a guy named Yitzhak Lamdan. And that really brings Masada back to the forefront of uh, the Zionist imagination, I suppose, the Jews who are interested in coming to Palestine and settling there. So Um, Masada became a civil religious pilgrimage destination even before Israel was established as a state. And so if you were a youth hiker, you would uh, be excited by this challenge of uh, getting your gear, getting your equipment and trekking through this very difficult, dangerous terrain of the Judean desert, right? Overlooking the Dead Sea, the lowest point on Earth, navigating these canyons and cliffs. And making it to this ancient site where uh, Jews used to climb uh, the same path that you climb up. I mean, right? It's, it was a way to to connect with what ancient Jews were doing in a very visible and visceral location, with ruins still uh, stacked up on top of the mountain, but with no signs, no handrails. Right? There's no cable car at that time leading up to the mountain. Um, So these are the layers that they're interested in uncovering. These are the paths they're trying to find. They want to find these ancient routes that might have been walked by ancient Jews in the land, um, but which were in fact used and maintained over the ages largely by the Arabs who lived there. So there's a tension in discovering these trails, resurrecting them, and then how do you talk about them? How do you use them? How do you make them feel like your own when there's also this... Growing conflict with the Arabs who have lived in Palestine for centuries and centuries.
2: Yeah, you you touch on it there and then previously about you know this relationship, very dynamic relationship to the land and its history and how that's seen perceived. So I'm wondering in the, in your book how you conceive of you know what land is, right? Um, but then particularly how you focus theoretically on desire and place and you know, what the meaning of these elements are in in modern israel
1: yeah i mean i said at the beginning how when i first hiked these trails in israel i had this deep sense that hiking was just a lot more than hiking that i mean uh that what i think of as hiking some maybe just benign interaction with nature or environment or i'm going out to do something recreational and it's healthy it's nice for me to be out in the forest i mean uh, I, I come, we all come to uh, the outdoors or whatever we want to call it, nature, environment, outdoors with our own cultural baggage. I mean, just framing it as nature is something that we can all think about what that really means, right? And what does it mean when we go hike trails? What do, What do I don't know, Europeans and Americans, what baggage do they bring? Well, it, I had the sense that Israelis have a whole different view of the outdoors, of land, of trails. they These all seemed to have a different significance to them. They thought it was strange that a, a non-Jewish, non-Israeli, American person would hike these trails. And I think it's because they see those trails as spaces where they themselves are connecting with the Jewish homeland on some visceral level. And I say a visceral level because it's not something they... Uh, most of the hikers I met or encountered or who I still know today, it's not something they would even put into words. It's more something just deeply felt. So in studying all of this, I wanted to find out where that came from. Why is there a sense of connectedness to land that seems so different from what I've experienced in my own country as I go hiking? So I draw on some, some theoretical works, but really I, I took note of a number of historians of Israel and of Zionism who look at the founding generation of what becomes the state of Israel, right? The young men and women who immigrate from Europe in at the very beginning of the 20th century. They're sometimes called the second aliyah, the second wave of Zionist immigration. They begin arriving between 1904 and 1914 or thereabouts right up until World War One. And they come to Palestine from Eastern Europe with a really radical mentality about connecting with the land of Israel. They have uh, a kind of mystical an idea of a mystical union, I would say, that develops. Even though these are secular people, they seem to have a whole cosmology that you can you can spin this out from reading their philosophers, their big influences, again people like AD Gordon Uh, the the philosopher who really was uh, the biggest voice guiding their generation. So if you read what they write, the way they describe land, they are seeking contact with the land, with the soil. They're burying their hands in the soil. They're immersing themselves in its waters. And they describe their interactions with the land almost always in very eroticized terms. They talk about love for the land of israel but they also talk about knowing the land of israel using a hebrew term that's uh kind of that biblical knowing right um adam knew eve and they gave birth to a son right so uh this knowledge of land that they seek they want to go explore the country and they want to know it but they use a verb that very much talks about that sexual relationship so historians have have debated and discussed, well, why do they do this? Why do they talk about the land of Israel this way? And, you know, they come up with all kinds of answers. It's just a metaphor. This is just kind of how they express it. Um, but I I was, I was myself was influenced by a historian, uh, the late Israeli historian Boaz Neumann, who wrote a book called Land and Desire in Early Zionism. Uh, in Hebrew, it was called Chukata Halutzim, uh, the desire of the pioneers. And he just focuses on desire for the land. What what what's driving these young men and women to describe the land the way they do? And he just takes their views seriously. He takes a phenomenological approach and really tries to get into the bubble of the this pioneer mindset. slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And in doing so, in looking at hundreds and hundreds of examples from their literature, he basically concludes that, um, that the Zionists who built this culture of labor and uh, building, they really believed that their fate was tied to the land itself in some mystical way. That as they built up the land of Israel, which, of course, it was Palestine, but they knew it exclusively. They talked about it exclusively as the land of Israel. They, uh, they, saw, they saw their activities there as kind of being mirrored in their own bodies and their own selves, their own mentalities. As they invested and poured their labor into the land of Israel, they began to shed their diaspora mentality. And they became reborn as new people. In the land of israel where their uh existence could be actualized they saw this as an existential undertaking and so uh they're most known for labor and building and uh, these are the people who built all of israel's central institutions before the state even existed it's labor unions it's kind of uh, executive branch of government it's militia organizations that give rise to the israeli military later on this small cadre of leaders who were so devoted to land they were the ones who built all those institutions and so their mentality became really baked into the structure of the country going forward and of israeli society going forward so by doing that they transmitted these values to new generations of israelis and one of the key ways in which those values were transmitted was through this knowledge of land carried out On first, unmarked footpaths. Zionist schools would send their students out to places like Masada and others, and they would start, they would be taught to know the land, memorize its every feature, know the geology, the geography, the flora, the fauna, call everything by its Hebrew name, and in doing so, connect with it in a way that will transform you into a new being. So, they don't talk about it that way so much now. When you talk to hikers out on the trails, I mean, I think that would be a little weird even for them. But, uh, but it does. Do, I'll, I'll just to kind of finish that question. There's an, an Israeli geographer, um, uh, also not around anymore. His name is Miron, Miron Benvenisti, who did a lot of writing about this kind of stuff in the '80s. His father was one of the great exponents of knowledge of the land in the '30s and '40s. And Maron ben Benisti writing later in the 80s, he says, look, even as I look back on this whole culture, this nationalist hiking that I was involved in, he says, uh, I see it as problematic, but I, I can't get away from the idea that somehow the land of Israel is the only real land on earth, the only one worth connecting with and engaging. And he says, my friends make fun of me when I go to New York City. And I say that the trees in Central Park don't seem real to me, because the only place where trees could actually be real would be in the land of Israel. So even someone who can look at it critically and step outside the bubble, he's writing much, much later, decades later, and saying, I still can't shake this sense. And this is true, he says, for many, many Israelis who love these trails and love hiking.
2: That's fascinating. So it seems at this point that this has become this idea of knowing the land and of experiencing it, connecting with it through the
1: trails has
2: become so embedded that maybe it's unspoken truth in Israeli culture and society. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you talk to hikers, um, and they might think that putting it in an academic framework seems a little rigid or strange. Mm -hmm. But you start talking to them about it, like, do you see this on a personal level? And before you know it, they're sharing stories about their own connectedness to the land. Mm I'm wondering then as well, you know, given this sort of uh, swelling topics of
2: you know land trails and the, the act of hiking, what does this tell us about the changing nature of political Zionism? You've talked a little about this history and you know these these waves of of um, you know, European Jews coming to Palestine, but what what can the trails tell us about the this you know the the evolution of, of Zionism over the years?
1: Yeah, that's a, another great question. I mean, if we look at the early history of Zionism, we almost have to talk about Zionisms. You know, these different streams of thought, different approaches to uh, what it means to to build a, I guess, to yeah, to build a a new Jewish community in the land of Israel. Like that's how they're talking about it. Um, political Zionism is a movement associated with the big figurehead of early Zionism, Theodore Herzl, um, who was mainly concerned with building a Jewish state. And he thought a lot about bureaucracy and state symbols and things like that. And he galvanized a movement. But then there were other Zionist thinkers who thought a lot more about culture, thought more about labor uh, and the roles of these things in building a state that's not just full of Jewish citizens, but a state that's inherently Jewish, a state whose structure and values are informed by Jewish ideas and traditions and history. So, this these are debates in the early 20th century. What's going to be the shape of this Jewish community being built in Palestine, and uh, what will its values be? The the people who really win out are the labor zionists the people who i've mentioned as playing such an important role in building institutions that will become central to the state um david ben gurion the first prime minister of israel i i often tell this story many people have observed this if you go to his grave uh down in the negev desert uh, you'll you'll it's it's you know it's built in a spot intentionally designed to cause you to look out over the land really more than to look at you to think about his his tomb itself uh so you you his is you 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 can just turn around from his grave and see this Mm -hmm. enormous vista over a giant canyon in the in the negev well that was intentional this is his connectedness with land but if you look at the dates on his tombstone his birth date is given the date of his death is given but there's also a third date 1906 which is the day He first set foot in the land of Israel. So for him, this was, again, a new birth. This was an existential thing. Well, David Ben-Gurion was uh, Israel's first prime minister. The political party he built uh, dominated Israeli politics until 1977. So for the first three decades of Israel's existence, the labor Zionists were really running the show. Not until the late 70s that the right wing finally ascends to power. Uh, And then, you know, since then it's been back and forth and today Israeli politics is dominated more by the right wing. But interestingly enough, land and trails and hiking have remained relevant through all of Israel's political shifts. And I think the power of how Jewish Israelis understand land and the power of their engagement with land through hiking has made trails a tool that's useful across the political spectrum um the left wing would use it i guess they used it to kind of get the state going build that sense of connectedness but later on the right wing especially as israel expands into territories like the gaza strip the west bank even the sinai peninsula the golan heights uh after 1967 trails and hiking become I don't know. They're 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 in that Zionist playbook of this is a way you connect with space, and this is a way you begin to gain, to gain control over it, and heighten Jewish presence in these areas. So, uh, as Zionism has evolved, as the leaders of Zionism have evolved, uh, and and those tides have shifted, trails have remained relevant for any Israeli who wants to who believes that maintaining a sense of connectedness to land will be expedient.
2: So, given the given these sort of political aspects um, that so intersect with these trails, if you will, I'm wondering if in your study and your research, you encountered any sort of similar settler colonial projects that oriented around land and hiking. And were these helpful to your perspective, or did they leave you thinking ab- about the difference of these connections in Israel compared to other settler colonial projects?
1: Yeah, I, I had to think about that because, um, I mean, there's a whole literature of settler colonialism, uh, which is right different from, I guess, the 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 main view of colonialism that most people have. Right. Um, it's ha- a society expanding uh, into new territory and dominating land and taking over land even uh, through methods that we might think of just kind of everyday things. So uh, these views of land and hiking can certainly fit into those uh, settler colonial paradigms for understanding Zionism and the way it gained control over territory. Um, I did have to compare the spread of Israel's trail network with other trail networks. I mean, I I really wondered about this. I mean, uh, here we have a European hiking trail system in the middle of the Middle East, uh, only recently have neighboring Middle Eastern countries started to have similar things, um, and I think that's just part of globalization, right? So there's a there's a Lebanon mountain trail, for example, that Lebanese hikers and environmentalists, many of whom I think have had exposure to European trails and American trails, and that 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 mode of interacting with environment. So they've they've built trails kind of like what you'd recognize in America or Europe, um, but that's a system that I think just took place because of you know, Lebanese kind of in the in the diaspora, coming back and building things that they just like from other places. Similarly, there's a Jordan Trail uh, that goes across Jordan. There's Sinai Trail in Egypt. These are all relatively new, really emerging, I guess, in the, in the two thousands. Um, but Israel's system is coming out of early twentieth twentieth century Europe. So I did wonder. Uh, Where else do we see hiking trails European style pop up? And many of many places where they pop up are in places where there was a colonial presence. I mean, uh, South Africa is one example. Um, We see them uh, pop up in Asian countries where there was a lot of engagement with uh, the with the United States post World War II, for example. Japan has a huge amount of hiking trails. It's not accurate just to say that those were somehow imported by. Uh, external occupiers many of those trails had been there for for a long time but only later did they get marked in a more of a european style way so there's a larger conversation i think to be had about hiking as we know it today and how it spread around the world kind of in the shadow of colonial occupiers right i mean it's uh, to me there's i don't i don't think there's been any anything really written on hiking as a phenomenon and how it spread outside of Europe and the United States, the Americas, um, that really considers the role that colonialism had in maybe uh, starting it. All that said, it it becomes a hybrid phenomenon in most of these places. And so it it does, too, even even in Israel. So um, there is that settler colonial aspect um, where uh, Jewish society is able to use trails to project presence into areas it might not otherwise be able to uh like they're in in more easily accessible areas of palestine in the 30s you have jewish like kibbutzim like little you know settlements that had been purchased they're built on purchased land but they would spread their influence through the countryside by way of hikers so if they couldn't build roads if they couldn't uh have sovereignty over territory they'd take the next best thing which would be to project their presence out in the form of their their own citizens their own residents i guess um so yeah there are those there are those things that fit right into the settler colonial paradigm and then there are things that once israel becomes a state later on uh the way israelis hike takes on its own character that's i think a little bit more connected with just I don't know their own identity and and the way the local landscape and, and culture shapes it. So in, yeah.
2: yeah, so it feels like as you know, as, as I was, you know, reading through the book that the book the work that you've done itself is quite interdisciplinary. So I wonder if you could tell us in sort of switching gears here and thinking about the how of the book. Um, I wondered how you approached engaging with different disciplines and what some of the challenges were and if this is a a common thread in Israeli studies uh, to be interdisciplinary.
1: Yeah, um, the second question is maybe easier to answer. The Israel Studies is really it's 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 a field. It's an area of study. It's not really a single discipline. So if you go to the Association for Israel Studies conference, for example, uh, you'll meet people of all different backgrounds studying Israel in different ways from different perspectives. So. Um, so the interdisciplinary approaches, kind of like area studies approaches, are really useful for for understanding modern Israel. Uh, and I would even say Israel Palestine. I mean, it's I think to understand Israel, you have to understand its history as Palestine, of course, but you also have to understand its connection with the occupied territories. I mean, they've become so interwoven. Um, so even just just. The boundaries of what we mean by Israel studies have to be somewhat flexible because we have to understand that uh, there's a there's a kind of a diaspora of Israelis living around the world that has an influence on what Israel is today. There's also these territories like the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, Golan Heights, in which Israel has differing levels of influence and control. Uh, there's the Sinai Peninsula that was occupied by Israel for, for a long time, right, for more than a decade. So... Um, yeah. Israel Studies is inherently an interdisciplinary thing. Um, my work, I, I, I'm a historian, but this work is deeply geographic. I'm using a lot of maps. I'm trying to track the spread of these hiking trails across uh, varied terrains and very just geographic uh, areas in Israel. So Geography is, is a big part. I had to delve into the literature of human geography, uh, cultural geography, to think about the way uh, societies are interacting with territory and using these different tools. Politics is obviously a huge part of this. Um, as you get into the, all these political debates over the future of different territories... There are big arguments. I mean, should Israeli. So, you know, in the 1990s, when Israel and the Palestinians are talking about peace through the Oslo Accords, uh, there are big questions. Should Israelis hike at all in the West Bank? Should they be marking trails in the West Bank? Should they be erasing their own trails in the West Bank? Um, or, I mean, there are there's a whole right wing in Israeli society saying, no, of all times, we need to begin marking trails and deepen our presence in the West Bank in order to make an eventual Palestinian state even more impossible to build. So trails actually become weapons deployed in these pal- in these um, in these political struggles between Palestinians and Israelis. So uh, digging into that uh, was important as well. So it is a very interdisciplinary work. I found myself in telling the story of trails, uh, sometimes thinking, having to think more of maybe the way a journalist would write a book about this. Um, doing field visits and interviews and going and seeing these places on my own. And I think even farther down to to the roots of this, my own experiences on trails informed me a lot. I mean, when I found out about the first trail that was marked in 1947 on the shores of the Dead Sea along this route to Masada that Jewish hikers thought was so important to preserve and that was so dangerous, they believed it needed to be the first trail marked. I thought, well, man, I have to go out there, you know, I've I've got to see what this is like. And I, I climbed it in the daytime. I climbed it in the moonlight. I tried to just get a sense of why this place mattered so much. People had died there, had fallen from cliffs. I wanted, if I was going to write about this and, and argue that it had existential importance for people at the time. I had to go out and get a sense of its existence and what it feels like to be there. So, uh, yeah, I did my best to to really kind of get this from every dimension. So, uh, the, yeah, it's
2: really interesting again to hear about right this this kind of level of engagement right with with the field right and trying to understand both through your own physical walking but then through talking with others right what the meaning of you know all these intersections are. So just to kind of shift again a little bit more, um, given sort of the role of violent conflict in the early development of the Trails and just sort of conflict more broadly, is there any or are there any contemporary connections with the ongoing conflict in
1: Israel-Palestine with the existence of Trails more recently? Yeah, I think that... Trails are one of those things that you're not going to hear so much about when we're discussing issues between Israelis and Palestinians, when we're discussing about, you know, right, the future of the Israeli state, a Palestinian state, uh, Hamas in Gaza, the the Fatah in the West Bank. We're, trails don't come up much in the conversation in the conversation. Uh, nevertheless, um, yeah, I think trails tell us what's at stake. For both sides right the, the trails become a lens into understanding the meaning of the land for mainly for israelis right I'm, I'm writing mainly from the israeli perspective but the idea of walking the land walking land is extremely important for palestinians too so uh, the uh, whole books need to be written on this some great books have been written on it uh one of my favorite books is a book called palestinian walks by raja shahada um and so that's, that's kind of a bit of a starting point, I suppose, for understanding the other side of this, which which needs to be told and understood. But since this is the side I've focused on in the book, um, I can point to some examples of of where trails suddenly appear uh, in, in these discussions of territorial control and even conflict. In 2010, I believe, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who was Prime Minister then, is Prime Minister now. Uh, spoke at a national security conference, a very important one, at a place called IDC Herzliya, uh, a university near uh, near Tel Aviv, and uh, it, it had become a tradition for the prime minister to give an annual national security speech at this conference, and so I think it was the fourth annual Herzliya conference. Netanyahu takes the takes the podium. And everyone's expecting him to talk about, I mean, who knows, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Iranian nuclear program. Um, And he begins talking about hiking trails. He baffles his international audience by saying that Jewish youth in the state of Israel are losing their attachment to Zionism. They're losing the sense of why there needed to be a Jewish homeland and a Jewish state. And only through resurrecting their connection with Zionism, would it be possible to have a new generation passionate about the state and able to defend it and face its coming challenges. So I think the audience was with him up to that point. And then he says, here's the solution, hiking trails. And he puts a map on the screen of all these routes that he thinks need to be developed and Historical sites, this constellation of historical sites connected by trails and saying, look, Israel has a national trail, but it doesn't go to the right places and we need to build new national trails that will. And it was a remarkable speech to me because here he was speaking out of his own inherited connection to land through walking in trails. And he was speaking almost the way he would speak to a local Israeli audience who wasn't baffled. They weren't baffled by what he was saying. They understood perfectly the connection he was making, but the internationals didn't understand it at all. Um, So in in the context of conflict, you do start to get people saying uh, trails could be a solution. Um, One other brief example I'll give is that again, Israel's national trail. uh, It's called Shvil Israel. It's just literally called the Israel Trail. It was marked in the 80s and 90s and came to be viewed as an articulation of what Israel was. It wasn't just a showcase of the most beautiful places. But the moment somebody said, we're going to mark a trail that goes all the way across the country and it's going to be called the Israel Trail, hikers, commentators, members of Israel's parliament all began weighing in on where this trail should go because there was this this implicit understanding that the identity of the trail was somehow connected to the identity of Israelis themselves um, and would maybe define their identities going forward. Again, I mean, think about what's at stake there. So uh, when the trail was unveiled, it didn't go to the West Bank at all. It didn't go to Jerusalem. It didn't go to Masada. It didn't go to the Golan Heights. All these places where you might think, I guess nationalists might want trails to represent control over contested territory or kind of gin up this sense of uh, old school Zionist nationalism at a place like Masada. Those are all left off of the route. So 2016, 2017, there were many other movements like this. But around that time, there was a strong movement to build the Eastern Israel Trail, which would be an intentional effort to make an alternative route that ran right through the West Bank and would give Israeli hikers the opportunity to walk that section rather than the section that just runs through pre-1967 Israel. So, yeah, I mean, during times when nationalist sentiments are high, you get conversations about what trails are actually doing to foster a sense of, you know, uh identification with land. So, I would say that uh, if, if, if anyone, anyone who reads my book, I would hope, gets a sense of the depth to which this feeling of needing to be rooted in territory, needing to be rooted in the land of Israel, still plays a role in Israeli discussions. And so when we listen to people talking about what's going on uh, right now at the time of this recording between uh, Israel and Hamas in Gaza, when it's being described as an existential conflict for Israel, I don't think they're just talking in strategic national security terms. They're also talking about something that runs a lot deeper on a visceral and existential level for them.
2: Mm. Well, thank you for bringing us into the present. That, uh, so uh, Just to round off our time together, I had a couple of last questions for you, uh, particularly for you, wondering what you're working on now or something. You anticipate working on in the future, either connected to the book or something completely different, perhaps.
1: Yeah, my last, uh, the my my most recent project uh, involves something that began in the research for this book, for Walking the Land. Uh, a group of Jewish hikers in 1934 set out to circle the Dead Sea on foot and for them it was this I think it was embedded in that nationalist idea going and exploring and even crossing boundaries and doing it because they felt that they had the right to do it Um, and because they wanted to understand the Dead Sea they wanted to know the land and its geography and so they did these guys walked around it in 1934. It, was, it became a famous trek in the Jewish community of pre-statehood Palestine, and eventually in Israel. They wrote a book in the 60s that became a best-selling Hebrew uh, story. We circled the Dead Sea on foot, they called it. And it was this adventure story in which they all lost weight, uh, like huge amounts of weight trekking through the desert and had to float around some of the obstacles, the cliff sides of the Dead Sea. It's this big thing. They also uh, note all the biodiversity that existed down there in the 30s. They encounter Syrian brown bears in the canyons above the Dead Sea. I mean, just a remarkable story. Um, Problematic, I think, for readers now because they, they rob Bedouins of their water at gunpoint. I mean, so again, there too, you see this kind of we have the right to be here attitude expressed in a pretty militant way. They certainly weren't improving Jewish Arab relations in the 1930s down there near the Dead Sea, um, but I became interested in that trek more as a um, they claimed to have been the first people in recorded history ever to walk around the Dead Sea in an uninterrupted circle, and I learned that that attempt people had attempted to repeat the feat but never had, and it had never been possible until Israel and Jordan made peace in 1994. But even then, nobody had tried to do it, so. I thought it would be an interesting thing to go and do uh to to get a sense of how how things have changed between then and now not just in terms of there being a national border international border that runs down the center of the dead sea and the judean desert and that whole area mm-hmm. but um you know oh they, they, there's an environmental crisis unfolding uh, down at the dead sea the water levels have dropped for all kinds of reasons but uh, I I, w- I walked around it in 2022 and I'm working on a book now that tries to use that walk as uh, a vehicle toward a more holistic understanding of the Dead Sea, its history, its current environmental crisis. So oh, that's what I'm working on. Awesome.
2: Oh, that sounds amazing. I have to I definitely have to check that one out um, as you're getting closer to the time. Uh, so, last but not least, we're wondering, uh, particularly for our listeners, if there are any particular books or other media like films or theater plays that you might recommend that have influenced you in your scholarship.
1: Over the years, okay, um, and the one that the one uh, the one I mentioned that lies kind of at the heart of walking the land is the book by Boaz Neumann, "Land and Desire in Early Zionism." It was published by Brandeis University Press. Can't remember the exact year. I guess it would have been around 2011 thereabouts. Um, but that's by Neumann, N E U M A N N. It's a wonderful book on the worldview of those early zionist that so-called pioneer generation and then a more contemporary work is a great novel by one of israel's most revered writers david grossman grossman Uh, uh, he wrote a book called to the end of the land that was the english transit translation i think it was from 2010 and it's a beautiful story about a woman who fears that her son has been killed in war, and does not want to receive the notification that it has happened, and so she sets out on a hike of the Israel National Trail along with her best friend. And uh, some people have called this you just one of the one of the greatest Hebrew novels ever written. It's this amazing exploration of what it means to be Israeli. To me, it's significant that David Grossman chose to do this to to set his novel on the Israel National Trail, and. The, the, the actual story of the novel is maybe even more remarkable. Grossman himself was a vocal critic of Israel's ground invasion of Lebanon during the 2006 war with Hezbollah. Uh, and during that month-long campaign, Grossman was one of the voices in the wilderness, you know, calling for a ceasefire. And his own son was serving in Israel's military in Lebanon. And on the very last day of the war, I believe the ceasefire had been agreed upon but had not yet gone into effect his son was killed at the very final moment of the war. And that was what was going on for David Grossman while he was writing this book. And he himself went out onto the Israel national trail in an effort to process these personal and national crises. Mm -hmm. And this novel is the outgrowth of that. So I would recommend that to your readers who just want to understand the way this plays out, even in recent times for Israelis.
2: Yeah, fantastic. And it again, speaks to the Right, and use that word again, right, the intersections of the past and the present with the, the hiking trails. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Shay, for your time and for sharing your book with us. Again, um, I've been speaking to Shay Rabino about Walking the Land, the History of Israeli Hiking Trails, and it's published this year by uh, Indiana University Press. So thanks again, and um, join us next time.